Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Classroom Matters with me, your host, Christy Hull. And today, I am delighted to not only have one guest, but I have two wonderful guests with me on the show today. First, we have Professor John Hattie, who is a renowned researcher in education. His research interests include performance indicators, models of measurement and evaluation of teaching and learning. And John became known to a wider public with the publication of his two books, Visible Learning and Visible Learning for Teachers, the result of 15 years of research. The Visible Learning series has sold more than 1.5 million copies and has been translated into 29 different languages. John has been called possibly the world's most influential education academic, and he holds a PhD from the University of Toronto, Canada. Kyle Hattie is also with us today. Uh, Kyle is a year six teacher working in a primary school in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, Australia. Over his 10-year career, Kyle has taught at many year levels from prep to year six in both Australia and New Zealand. Kyle has held various leadership titles and has a passion for understanding how students become learners. They're here today to discuss their new book, 10 Steps to Develop Great Learners, Visible Learning for Parents. Welcome, John and Kyle. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Good to be here, Christy. Thanks for having us. All right, so we're going to just jump in. So our listeners, you know, a lot of our listeners have probably heard of both of you. Um, they know about some of your work already. And so for those of you that don't, could you give them a little bit of background from each of you about some of the work that you've been doing in your career and really what the background of the visible learning um, model and components look like? You go first, Kyle. Well, a bit of background, um, like you said, I've been teaching for 10 years and over over that time I have really sort of delved into the visible learning work as I've sort of been seeing it and living it ever since Dad had started it. Um, working across various school levels and various job titles trying to figure out as much as I can around the profession and be sort of the best educator that I can be, learning as much as I can. And through that time I've really developed a sort of a passion to try to figure out more rather than how to teach as best I can more and try to focus more on how do you get the most out of student learning. And my background is um, having lived in a university for many years, even though, Christy, I did have some brief tenure as a real teacher for a, a year at an elementary school and a year at a high school. Um, but mine has been mainly research over the years and my fascination has been actually measurements and statistics. That's my background. Uh, it is a side hobby. I was intrigued that everybody I met in education knew truth. They could tell me exactly what worked and all I had to do was watch their classroom. And what was fascinating is you guys differ so dramatically. How come everything works? And so that's what got me going and trying to understand that dilemma. And it led to the, the visible learning work which is a synthesis of meta-analysis and it kind of took over my career in the last 10 years. All right, so what I w really want to jump into and dive into is one of the reasons that we're here today, and that's to really talk about your, your new book, 10 Steps to Develop Great Learners, Visible Learning for Parents. Now, when I was in education, I was a visible learning fan and a visible learning for teachers 
which really, really helped in the classroom setting as an administrator. But now you have come up with another book for parents, Visible Learning for Parents. So really, before we talk about what people are going to find in the book, um, what sort of drove you to write this book? What was your vision when you started getting ideas for this book? And now that the book is finished, um, what kind of impact are you wanting this book to have? Um, so I think this started um, probably a while ago when my when my eldest daughter was born, um, and all the conversations that we generally had around the dinner table at time we were uh, we were at mum and dad's place or talking is usually around education and usually around the visible learning work, being that everyone in the family are teachers, including my wife, and um, when found out Jess was pregnant sort of the conversation sort of flipped and there was a whole bunch of stories around from uh, horror stories from about parenting from both dad and my mum around different things and then sure and then the question arose kind of almost being cheeky but very much curious about it as well asking surely there's some evidence around parenting out there just like the visible learning work um and i think that really sparked some curiosity within dad to as we all know, he doesn't just grab one piece of evidence, he grabs all the evidence. Yeah. And so, yeah, what was your so role with that, that, John? Well, it was that um, moment when he said to me, surely um, there's evidence. Look, I brought up brilliant kids, as you do when they get older. And so I had all this evidence from my experience of being a father to tell Carl what he should do with his, my grandchildren. And so when he said to me, surely there's evidence, it kind of hit that nerve. And so I thought, well, I wonder how big is the research base out there on parenting? Because if you go to any bookstore, shelves are groaning with books on parents. And we thought, hey, where's the evidence? And it turns out you know, there's not as much as there is for schools and education, but there is a reasonable amount. So I thought, can I do the same, what I did to achievement, for parenting? And so we did. And so we started collecting all the data and the evidence. And you know, it took us about six years to write this book to collect that evidence because we wanted to ground it in that. Um, and we wanted to, to, to make it appeal to parents, which is tough for me, because I write academic ease, um, as you know, Christy. And so Kyle uh, added his stories, he added his flavor, he helped rewrite it so that it was more accessible. But the other, the other big reason was that as we worked in many schools, principals said, look, we're having a problem with some of our parents. They don't seem to understand what it means to be a learner. Uh, and you know, COVID was a classic example. Many parents, even though they all went to school themselves, had forgotten what it means to be a learner. And so we thought, well, let's write a book that principals can also use with their parents to understand what it means to be a learner. So that heavy focus on being a learner. So that was the impetus of it. And I, I've learned to um, not give us as much free advice to my kids anymore. But now Kyle and I have a book we can give to our, his brothers. Yeah. And I think what's so important about what you um, and Kyle are talking about and the research that you've done and the, all the, the educational books that are out there is very few of them include parents within that educational process. And so you know, when, when you're an, a teacher or an administrator, and I know that a lot of our listeners are in those roles, you are really focusing on 
the educational process and the teaching and learning process. And, you know, whether you're using, you know, visible learning as your model or something else, you, we very rarely see those folks that are writing books about education for educators, including parents in that learning process. And so I think that the fact that, that uh, John, you and Kyle have done that with this book really speaks volumes to the, the transition that I think we need to start seeing in the world of education. And instead of keeping parents out of the learning experience and it being a separate, you know, here's what we do at home, here's what you do at school, you've really found a way to bring those two things together. And I think that's really important work for parents to understand and know about and feel a part of and educators to be able to understand that component too. So is that sort of something that you're trying to get out of this book? Yeah, it very much is because um, we've known for years that we as school people have to communicate with parents. And, you know, sometimes we say, well, we want parents to help in the cafeteria, we want the parents to help with homework, and we put them on the margins. And we kind of know why we do that, because um, you know, they're not there in the classroom. For many kids, school is the safe haven. But COVID actually taught us dramatically that uh, some parents, many parents, are not good teachers, um, but they do want to have a role on their kids. And so the whole focus of the book is how do we get parents to not be first teachers, but to be first learners, so they can complement what we're doing at school. And I think, um, I don't know about you, Kirsty, because you told me you had kids at school age. You saw your kids learning. You saw your kids struggling. You saw that struggle was a good word. And even though you're an educator, sometimes as parents we thought if they don't get an A, they don't get 100%, or they can't do it, there's something wrong. And if they can do it, there's something wrong, because it's too easy. And it is about not doing things. And showing parents that uh, is very, very powerful. And that's one of the major themes, that is the major theme of the book, how to be a great learner as a parent and foster that. And I think this is a really important role for schools to see that as the role of parents, not these peripheral things that we sometimes ask as parents. Yeah. And then we work together. Yeah. And, and Kyle, you know, I know you've been in the classroom now um, for six years. And so you're, you're teaching every day. You're an educator. You're seeing these, these challenges and these obstacles. And you're coming up with ways to include the parents as learners. And in the book, you talk about how to show your child that failure is the learner's best friend. So talk to us a little bit about really what that means and how we can embrace that. Yeah, it's one of those things, especially um, one of the things teachers hear a lot from parents is um, that whole idea of the kids aren't getting it right. Um, and parents often talk around and ask teachers, this is very different to how we used to, how we were taught as kids. We had to get the knowledge right. And we don't know what the knowledge is these days or the strategies these days. And it's one of the things that we are trying to, especially with the book, sort of change. It's not about knowing, it's about a way of thinking. And fostering that love of failure. Like these days teachers know that getting students to see their mistakes and reflect on what went wrong and be okay with that because that's how we learn. We know that as teachers, as parents, we often look at what our children are doing, um, whether it be building blocks, trying to climb something or not climb something in some respects and um, instantly go to that point of, no, let's, you need to do it this way. This is the right way to do it. 
But what that's doing is that's putting a barrier on the child exploring those realms and exploring those obstacles and then learning from if my tower falls down, then I need to, I need to do it in a different way. And if we as parents, and I think first parents, I know with my first daughter, anytime something didn't go wrong, I instantly jumped in there to try to see if I can help her do it the right way. But what that's stopping is that idea of, if it fails, someone's going to fix it for me. You know, that's like, my daughter learned from a very early age that if it falls down, that's all right. Mum's going to pick it back up. Dad's going to pick it back up. Grandma's going to pick it back up. Um... And that's going to slow down that resilience. And what we want to be doing is fostering that, okay, it fell down. Okay, let's see what happens. Let's see if she tries to put it up a different way. Or if a student gets something wrong, instead of telling them exactly, okay, this is the right way to do it, be like, what? ask the question, what went wrong? So that they can start seeing that failure is okay. It's not going to end the world if I don't get the question right. But what's not okay is not looking at what went wrong and not trying again because it didn't go right the first time. Fostering that love of learning through failure. You know, looking at mistakes, trying to trying to rework it because that's where the real learning happens. Dad, do you want to add on to that? Well, we saw it... Um... Carol, one of Carol Dweck's studies, I think it's one of her very best studies she did, where she looked at three-year-old kids with their parents. And those parents, when the kids made a mistake, got in and helped them fix it, compared to those parents who allowed the kid to try and come up with solutions. That was one of the best predictors of learning five or ten years later. And so, um, as Carl knows, the beauty of being a grandfather is when something falls over, you tip something else over. And then you wallow in that experience. And I think that's a really powerful notion. And in this day and age, I'm sure we all know those parents who overprotect their children, who um, get very angry with you, Christy, when you're a teacher because the child didn't get A+. Um, they're doing so much damage to their kids. And I, like I, one of the things I'm, I have always been intrigued by is gifted kids and why it is that nearly all gifted kids do not become gifted parents. Um, like less than 2% of child prodigies go on to be gifted adults. Did I say gifted parents? I meant gifted adults. Um, and so and one of the major reasons for that is around the age of 13, 14, 15, where many of those so-called gifted kids are asked to go into areas they're not familiar with, they've not learned to fail. Some of their parents won't allow them to. And that is not serving them well. And so this is where you know, failure has to be a good friend. Like take um, in covid and the parents complain to you that, oh, the kids can't get it. They're struggling. And our argument is, yes, struggle is the best thing they can do. If they're getting it right, it's too easy. And so how do you get that right balance of failure? How do you teach the kids and give them the confidence to try? And it really is so powerful that you see some students, even some adults, who have no confidence because they don't know what to do and it doesn't work. So they don't do it. And therefore they miss out. And so that's one of the really strong arguments we make throughout the book and, and all our work is that your know, failure is the best friend. Um, like Carl was brought up in uh, North Carolina in the 1990s and Michael Jordan was the, the hero, being a good North Carolinian. And he made the comment that you know, he succeeded because he failed so often. And now that I've got um, uh, four granddaughters, Ash Barty, our tennis player, she says you learn more when you lose. 
And these are the kind of messages that we're trying to get across. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in both of your experience over the last, you know, because I was raised in a time, you know, when I was in elementary school, that we were allowed to fail a little bit more. Our parents weren't as much over the top of us and hovering over and making sure we never felt an ounce of suffering or pain or disappointment. Um, and it's, it seems like it's, it's almost gotten worse and I you know I hate to say the word worse but it's kind of gotten worse over the last 10 years where we've got parents that feel like you know with the example that Kyle was giving and that you were giving John about if the tower falls over then mom rushes over and helps them pick it up or build it back up and and so you know is that is that sort of along the lines in the book when you talk about um, having parents be their child's first or being their child's first learner as opposed to being their child's first teacher. What do you mean by saying you need to be your child's first learner? What does that look like exactly? Yeah, I think it's one of those things. And it's, I think over the years there, and like Ted was saying, there are more and more parenting books coming out there, more and more understanding of the way children's brain works, development, what risks and factors are out there. And I think with all that new information comes a lot more questions, a lot more anxieties. And it's one of those things where parents are now looking at education and looking at how things work and thinking, okay, I can help because I've got this parenting book. I can now help teach my child to do that. And we want to flip that thinking. We don't want the parents to teach the child how. We want the parents to learn alongside their children. Learn that failure is okay. Learn that taking a risk is going to help them in succeeding. And yes, it might fail. It might not work the first time. But then learning alongside with your child is going to develop and foster that love of learning. And I think what parents realized through uh, remote learning is they don't have the skills to teach. Some of them, even the most of affluent parents and from, from affluent homes, they look at what their child is like in a learning situation and go, that is very different, because it is. And during COVID, you had kids behind a screen without the teacher there 24-7 being able to answer questions. The, the wait time was longer. So I think what kids had to do is they had to struggle a little longer before that before they got the help and what did they do they went to ask their parents for help and the parents look at what's being taught and going i don't understand the the teacher jargon i don't understand the way that we are learning these days and that's totally fine you don't have to know that because the role is the teacher and is there to educate we spent years in education, in training settings to become the teachers, to have these skills. Parents did not. And it's that thing where saying that is okay that you don't have the skills as a teacher because that's not your role. You're, and we don't want to sort of um, blur the lines between what are the role of the teachers, what are the role of the parents. We want to show that parents, you're there to love and support your child. You're there to help them when things are getting tough and let them know that it's okay to keep trying and keep pushing. And the role of the teacher is you're there to educate, you're there to create good relationships and develop a culture inside your classroom. And we're trying to sort of get the two working together in partnership, where in the home environment, 
it's fostering a love of learning and a culture of this is what we're doing at home. This is how we learn at home. This is how we trial and fail and keep persisting. And it's not supposed to be an education setting because they're supposed to feel it's it's a home setting. It's a home environment. It's safety. It's love. It's enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And we want to keep fostering that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, yeah. during, you know, you brought up COVID and the pandemic, and I know there have been a lot of parents over the last several years that have went from a public school or a private school environment to a homeschool setting. And they're finding out that it's, it's not the same. It can't function the same. It's, it's much more difficult um, than what I ever imagined. And, you know, about seven years ago, when I left the public school setting as an administrator, I, I, I started homeschooling um my my children and it was <laughs> let me tell you i did exactly what uh you said i you know and that you and john have talked about i tried to replicate the the public school classroom environment in my home and it did not work i i was i was so out of my element even though i had master's degrees and doctorate degrees and all these degrees in education and taught elementary school it was it was not the same and so i think your your ideas and um you know the information about parents you don't have to know it all you don't have to be the teacher you don't have to replicate that you have to be willing to learn alongside your child with your child and let your child struggle on occasion to become better um is, is such a needed message right now and i think that when parents hear this and they read this it's they're gonna like be able to breathe and take a sigh of relief and feel like they've had a weight lifted off um, from having to to be the teacher and do all these things and just relax and be able to learn. And so would you say, in your opinion, both of you, um, knowing what's went on with the pandemic and COVID over the last couple of years and all the flexibility within the educational environments, has that been in some ways a good thing, like that it has challenged kids to be more independent? Or have you seen that sort of make some of these systems fall apart to the point where we've got kids really performing behind grade level. Well, actually, the, the research is starting to come out and believe it or not, there's already two meta-analysis about the effects of COVID. Um, and it, we all know that it health problems, unemployment problems, had death in families, it had equity problems, had resource problems. We can go on and on about those stress, well-being, et cetera. But what's stunning is the average effect size of particularly the year 2020, was about minus 0.1, which is about the same effect of what kids lose over summer. Um, and that minus 0.1 doesn't mean the kids went backwards. What it means is that compared to the normal year where kids started the year at the end of the year, it was slightly down on average. And you know, given all the things that happened, you've got to stop and say, what worked so well? And I give all the credit to the teachers for making sure that they did their very best during that time. But what, I th and I think the biggest travesty of COVID is we learn nothing and run back to the old model. And what happened particularly for teachers is they learned, as Kyle was saying, they learned to release some responsibility. They learned that they had to teach their kids how to learn. They had to teach the kids to know what to do when they didn't know what to do. They had to worry about how the kids were gonna work at home, which sometimes was well-resourced, sometimes were not safe places. And so it showed teachers the um, ways in which to work in different ways. And I think the major message is that um, we need to realise that 
as educators, we really need to teach the kids to be great learners. We need to teach the kids to become their own teachers. And similarly with the parents, I think we've learned about how we can talk with them. And I hope we never go back to that crazy days where we send those reports home a couple of times a year, which takes so much time, but adds so little to anything. In fact, we, we did a study on that a few years ago from 300 schools, and we found that 98% of kids are achieving well, putting in an effort and a pleasure to teach. It's a public relations a lie, and the parents know it. Parents saw learning in the raw. They saw, as you said, Christy, sometimes their kids are not angels at school like we like to think they are. Sometimes they don't know how to work with other kids. And so those are the skills they need. And I think this is really a, a powerful message. And, and it's, it's what, as we say in the book, what we want parents to do at the home. Let, let me ask you, Christy, with your kids, what do you ask them at the tea table each night? How was school today? What did they do in school oh. today? <laughs> so you're reinforcing the very things we say that parents shouldn't do. It's not about the what. Yeah. Like if, Kyle, what question did you get asked every night at the tea table through your whole school career, you and your brothers? What feedback did you get today? We wanted them to talk about, listen to the teacher. We wanted to talk about learning. Yeah, what did you struggle with today? Yeah, what was the hardest thing you did? And make that normal and good. And I think this is a really powerful message we try and get across in the book about how parents can talk with their kids about dilemmas, about situations without any fear that they're bad things. And that's you know, the learning pit. Let's get into the learning pit at home and not rush in with the solution. Not rushing with the answer, not rushing with saying, oh, you tried this, or this is what I would have done. Allow the kids to explore. And so these are some of the messages that we, you know, we really are trying to get across. And as we say, you know, we saw it in your face in COVID. And I hope that we never forget what an incredibly powerful experience part of those COVID uh, experiences were. Yeah. And, and Kyle, you talk a little bit about the span of grades and years that you've been involved with in education. And so this isn't just something that we're talking about with school, all school age children. This can go all the way back and should start back in the preschool years. So you talk in the book about how to choose the right preschool, what to look for, um, you know, becoming a your child's first learner at the earliest ages of three and four when, when you're thinking about putting children into any academic or educational environment. And so what do what do parents need to look for that are really at that age with their children? Well, in terms of sort of choosing schools and looking at those sort of things, I think getting to know what the local schools around you are, getting to know what, what their program looks, what their program looks like, um, going in and seeing how the kids interact with each other, seeing how the teachers interact with the kids and what, like, is it a sort of situation where it's very strict routine sort of based or is it a little bit more open, being able to explore, being able to sort of, um, be, being able to trial things, fail with a few things, you know, uh, language being around, conversations happening. Is it is it silent? Is it is it rows and desks where the the teacher controls the narrative and teacher controls the dialogue or monologue in some respect, and or is it a place where where kids and students are actively engaging in dialogue because that's I think the big thing around everything is and what we know with early childhood and with um, with kids kids love to explore kids love to play 
But most importantly, kids love to talk about what they're playing and what they're doing and how they're sort of explaining that. And fostering that and bringing that is, I think, a really important sort of message because when, when we look at um, the idea of play and exploration and trial, it's not necessarily the play that's being the, the, the driver. It's the conversation behind it. It's the purpose behind the play. And I think if we give more chance for students to trial that and talk about that and keep exploring those things, they'll, they'll surprise us. Um, because I think all the research out there shows that um, school systems are inherently at sometimes a little flawed. Because the, the research out there shows that creativity over the years questioning over the years, the amount of questions being asked, dips dramatically as soon as they get to school. Like we know that as uh, four-year-olds, kids on average ask three to four hundred questions a day. After sort of the first year or the first term at school, that drops significantly. So how are we, and how is the system that we're, that we're putting our children in, fostering that love of curiosity, fostering that the, the, the questions and the dialogue around what they're doing, what they're learning and how they're learning it, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so as opposed to going into a preschool setting or a, a, you know, early childhood setting and seeing a lot of quiet students and a lot of teachers shushing the students and having them play quietly. And that's not what you want to see. You want to see a classroom full of appropriate buzzing conversations and dialogue and talking and you know you emphasize language 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 a lot um in the book and so is that something then that parents if they're listening to this are looking for and preschool teachers that are listening to this are like oh wow i kind of do like kind of shush my kids a lot maybe i should allow them to talk more even if it's not important yeah uh, definitely and i think it's it's not that the talk is not important all talk is important because old talk, it sort of brings it out there. And I think you bring a good point. It's one, well, I think one of the biggest pet peeves I have as a teacher, because I work in modern learning environments where there are four or five teachers in a learning space, a hundred kids. And it is really noisy. And one of my pet peeves is, is shushing. Shushing is, is like, it's one of the things, teachers shush because they don't like the noise. It's their learning style. But then what is that doing? And it's controlling it, the children's learning style to fit theirs. Why should a hundred kids fit one teacher's learning style? It should be the teacher sort of bringing out that for the kids. We don't want, and one of my favorite songs, we don't want the sound of silence out there. We want the sound of learning. Obviously, there's some organizational stuff that we have to do as teachers to control that. So it's not chaotic and not raucous that sort of, and sort of stifles the, the ability to hear or learn and concentrate. But to foster more working noise, learning is collaborative. Learning is not an individual pursuit of knowledge. It's, it's messy, it's chaotic, it's trial and error, it's talking about what you're doing, it's hearing other people's opinion. And we definitely need to foster that. Yeah. And John, did you want to add anything to that? Well, just echoing Kyle's notion that, you know, Walk into the home and count the language. Walk into a preschool setting and count the language and put your kid with as the most language. And one of the things which may upset some people in the book is we talk about play. And you know, play without language doesn't develop kids. There's nothing wrong with play without language, but don't think you're doing any learning. And some of those preschool settings overemphasize play and we say, no, 
There's no great evidence play increases kids' learning skills, but play with language does. And so the, and, you know, many preschool teachers are very aware of this and they construct so many opportunities because you know, that age, three, particularly around two, three and four, kids are building a theory about their world. As Kyle said, they're asking the why questions because they want to understand their world. Can you believe what happens if the kid is in silence? And in some homes, you know, the parents talk to their dogs more than their kids. So those preschool settings have to be rich in terms of that language notion. And we obviously would hope the home is as well. Like there was a great study one of my colleagues did many years ago, really interesting study, <coughs> where he measured the language when the parent put the kid into the push chair, the pram, facing forward or facing backwards towards the parent, or when they put them on their front, forward or backwards. The amount of language was dramatically different. When the kid was facing the parent, the language was huge. When the kid was facing out, it wasn't. And there are so many things as parents we can do to develop that love of language, that, that why, that curiosity. You know, as Carl said, you know, one of the frustrations you know, as I'm having as a, as a grandparent watching my six-year-old start school is the reduction in the why questions, the inductions in that curiosity, the reduction in how they're having a theory about the world. As they go into a school, and I don't want to criticise the school that she's in because it's actually Kyle's school, um, <laughs> it's, it's how the teacher has taken over the language. And I just think that's kind of sad. So I think this is where parents have a massive role, particularly in those early years, to have unbelievably rich language homes. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I think that, you know, so many things that you bring out in this book and all of the things that you're talking about now are really things that we we just have to. We have to start moving towards. We have to start moving forward with some of these things because the language and the learning and the environments, they have to change. And I see some of these changes very slowly, but, you know, books like this, Folks like you that are doing the research and getting the word out, um, you know, it's really going to make a difference and impact the, the, the children. And, you know, we were having a conversation earlier with someone about the, the children that have been born in the last five years have really been born into a world of, um, you know, sickness and illness and COVID and civil unrest and political turmoil and all of these things that they've dealt with in a very short period of time. And so this, I think... The work that you're doing is even more important now um, for teachers and parents and students. So thank you both, John and Kyle, Hattie. And so the book, 10 Steps to Develop Great Learners, Visible Learning for Parents, is available. So you can go on Amazon, order your book. Um, it's going to be a wonderful read. So I really recommend for all the parents and educators that are really interested in this visible learning that you grab a copy of that book. Um, where can folks get in touch with you if they want to contact you, have questions, um, need help, have questions about the book? Where can they reach you? Oh, look, I'm easy to find on the internet um, in my email. Uh, there's plenty of access out there. and We're happy to talk to anyone about this because, as you can hear, we're quite passionate about it. Yeah. And Kyle, where can people get in contact with you? Um, I'm not as easy to find as Dad on the internet. There's not as much about me out there at the moment. But um, if they go on to, um, my, so if they Google my name, my Twitter account does pop up. Happy to, like, like Dad said, we do like talking about this. And sometimes we talk about it with people that even that don't want to listen to us at times. But, um, well, yeah, um, if they go onto the school website, um, then they'll be able to find me.
All right. Well, John and Kyle, thank you both so much. I know that you are busy and you are completely across the other the other side of the, the, the world here. So um, I know it's really early your time and I, I appreciate you being on the show today. Great conversation and I, I am really um, admire all the work that you're doing for educators and parents. So thank you so much. Thank you, Christy. And this is Christy Hull signing off for this episode of Classroom Matters.